0: Welcome to the Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky of Break of Day Capital. I talk to leading experts to discuss a wide range of subjects to educate investors on best in class practices to build legacy wealth and positively impact communities. Let's jump in. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky with Break of Day Capital. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Asset Management Mastery, where we have a great community of thousands of like-minded individuals sharing resources and best practices. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to Quotenow.biz and we'll start the conversation. Today on the podcast, we have my friend Steve Brenton. Steve is the founder of Velocity Capital. He has sponsored 16 private offerings, invested passively in 43 syndications, is a real estate coach and is an active volunteer and board member for his local food pantry. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do?
1: Sure. Thanks for having me, Gary, first. And uh, yeah, so about me, you know, typical, you know, went to college, got a great job, started investing in real estate in 2013, 2012 uh, locally. Then I found syndication, started investing in those, a limited partner. And did so well in those investments that I ended up selling off my portfolio here in Boston to invest more as a passive investor, and eventually made my way into being a sponsor of those investments, which is what I do today. So I left my job in 2017 and you know just doing my my thing here. It's a semi-retirement, but I'm, I'm actually find myself working more and more because I really love what I do.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, you know you have a, a wealth of experience and. So over all these different deals, you've probably figured out what, what makes a good deal good and, and a bad deal bad or why you want to walk away from something. So curious, you yeah. know, what what are some of the the themes or trends that you've seen over all this time?
1: Yeah, they haven't changed a ton I, until recently, you know, with the this whole thing going on with the financial markets and banks and interest rates, you know, when I first started, I was always pretty conservative to begin with. I worked in a bank for a long time, and then I was working in biotech, managing large IT projects. And you know, being conservative so that you never overpromise anything, especially in, in project management space where I was, super important. And then also on the financial side, right? I don't want anyone overstating how much of a return I'm going to get and then fall short of that. So from an investor's perspective and the risk reward to the investor, super conservative underwriting. And you know everyone likes to say they're conservative, but you know what does that really look like? You know, is there a value add component where you can actually force equity in that property, or is it just strictly a cash flow play and there's really no upside? You know, that value add is really important to me because it protects you from when things go wrong, right? Hopefully you've executed some value add, you've added a ton of of net operating income, and the property is worth a lot more. So even if things go a little bit array or awry, you know, sideways on your deal you're still going to have the ability to make a profit. Another piece of that is cash flow is day one. Even if they're not amazing, if you're cash flowing day one, then it gives you time, right? That buys you time to execute your value add plan over the course of one, two, three years. Then you can just cash flow much heavier for the next four years if you want to hold it that long. So having cash flow day one is super important to the investor. And then for me as a sponsor, things also change there a little bit. You know, number one was having partners because I have local partners in some of the areas where I invest. I don't live in Texas, but a lot of my investments are there. And so having a local partner that is putting investor first, right, having that investor first mindset, doing whatever it takes to make sure that we deliver on our promise. I shouldn't say promise because I know with the SEC docs that we use, you can't actually promise a return. But, you know, I personally feel like I'm promising, especially to my family and friends that invest closely with me i promise promised to them that I'm going to take care of their money and do a good job with it. So
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I cringe when I see these deals that say best and twenty percent or more. And I'm like, I don't even if you've used conservative underwriting and you get to twenty percent, lower it, you know, because yeah, you probably have a blind spot somewhere. It's just you better be like, you know, always, always, always underpromise yeah. and overdeliver.
1: And especially like I said, with with today's capital markets. You know, a year ago, two years ago, we sold out of all of our sponsored deals, I think we sold uh, 10 or 11 in the past two years. It was hard not to make money with the markets as crazy as they were. And a lot of new people coming in to sponsor deals as syndicators, maybe not really fully understanding the underwriting or just, you know, assuming rents are going to go up forever or that you can do value add, you know, execution in six to 12 months when it should be 18 to 24 months. So you know, it's like the old saying from Mike Tyson, right? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Well, that punch in the face came when interest rates went from basically zero to 5%. That is a massive increase, and a lot of people weren't ready for that. We're struggling with one of our assets, just trying to get the refinance. We've refinanced two of them so far. We had three total that were on uh, variable rate loans. And the reason you do a variable rate loan, if you have a value add, you know it's going to be worth millions more in 12, 18, 24 months, right? We, we planned for 24 months. In the back of our minds, we're thinking, you know, we could probably execute it in a year, but let's not put that in our pro forma. So you know, we had planned to refi right around this time and you know, rates are now way higher than they were. So we were able, to, two of those assets, we were well underway with our value add were completed. Rents were so much higher, net operating income so much higher, so the value of the property also had increased. Those were easy to refi. The third one we're working on right now. It took a bit to find the right loan program. Interest rates are a little bit higher than we were hoping for, but you know we're going to get there. But if we hadn't been conservative in our underwriting, if we haven't just said you know it's going to be a 17, 18 IOR right turn on investment, we probably would be in trouble now because you know we also knew in our underwriting we're probably going to hit a 21, 22 percent right or that's what we suspected at that time. But we never told that to investors, right? We're not not—we're never making that promise. So we knew there was more upside than we were letting on. And that to me, is just a buffer. It's just, okay, when you get punched in the face, you know, or multiple punches, given, you know, we had massive insurance increase, massive tax increase on this property as well. You know, a whole host of things went went awry. But, you know, we're still holding up the asset. The plan, you know, over a three to five year period is still to hit our re- investment returns and everything's gonna be fine.
0: Yeah, I think that's, you know, Investors need to know not everything goes perfectly and count on that, actually. And even some of my toughest deals, we've done phenomenally well. And sometimes we've had to hold or postpone cash distribution because of COVID or whatever the reason is. Yet, we still have massive return at the end of the day. So it's, you know, be patient. It's a long-term hold to sell when it's the right time. And you're going to do very, very well.
1: Yeah, and that's a message for both sponsors and for LPs, right? I'm still a limited partner in a lot of different deals. I keep my money to work primarily in real estate, and I don't do that many transactions myself. So when I do have an exit on a deal, I'll I'll invest in two or three of my friends' deals, you know, as an LP. And it's the same thing. It's just I have to expect that things are going to go wrong, and those are the sort of questions I ask: What if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? You know, how many points of pressure can you withstand on this deal where your underwriting still holds up?
0: Talk about one of the most difficult obstacles you've had to overcome on a deal and, and how you overcame it.
1: Probably the most difficult was we had a deal, it was a value-add deal again, heavy value-add. This was a Class C. We had to renovate every unit. So there was a lot that we had to execute on. We bought that asset and COVID hit, Like I think, within a month or two after we bought it. And we hadn't really performed the value-add. You know, I think we renovated a couple of units at that point. And so we had a lot of tenants that, you know, we, that we had inherited. We probably had five or six. This was only 72 assets, uh, 73 units. We had five or six tenants that weren't paying right out of the gate that, when we acquired. And then a few others that had stopped paying when COVID hit and claimed that they weren't getting paid, but you know, they were school teachers. We knew that school teachers were still getting paid, but they refused to pay their rent anyway. And this was in a more you know, liberal county in the country. So they closed their eviction courts. They didn't care whether it was COVID-related or not. They just weren't going to process any evictions. So it didn't matter what the tenants did. didn't matter how large their balance got or if they destroyed property. They just weren't going to hear evictions. On top of that, we had a fire. right? So that burned out 12 units. And then when finally the COVID restrictions were, were lifted, this particular county decided to go for still almost a full year before they opened their eviction courts. So we had this massive balance in mean, the property. We had to stop giving distributions to our investors. We weren't cash flowing very well, barely making a mortgage. And then we, we applied for a rent relief fund and or the, you know, the federal COVID relief on behalf of our tenants. We applied and the tenants, I don't know if this was just in this county. I don't think we had this issue with other properties, but the tenants had to sign those forms with us. You know, we completed it. We signed everything. We had the tenants sign, which and all that was was stating, you know, Yes, I had trouble paying my rent. I have a balance of X amount. You know, a few of the tenants just refused to sign it, and we were like, "This is crazy." <laughs> you know, we let you live here for free for a year. Like, maybe just sign the form, to help us get our our income. So, yeah, challenges, you know, one after another hit. How do we overcome it? Thank God, I have an amazing partner there who you know did the the grind. Was on site. We had to fire the property manager as well during this whole time. So. It was really paying attention to all of the details, managing every little expense, doing a, you know an amazing job of finding the right tenants. We kept lower occupancy for a long time because we couldn't find you know really qualified good tenants, but we felt that that was better than having tenants come in who just weren't going to pay at all so yeah we've we've struggled with that one for you know it's been a couple of years, almost three at this point you know or uh, coming on three, so it's been quite a challenge, but we're now shopping that deal around you know, to see what we can do in terms of selling it. And it looks like we're going to hit our overall number that we had projected. And that one in particular, actually, when you talk about you know, under-promising, my partner had originally underwritten that one, came back and said, oh, we could refi everyone 100% of their money back in like 12 months. And and then we had a cash flow between the infinite cash flow. Right? It was an amazing deal. The numbers were spectacular. And I'm like, there's no way I'm saying that. Right. There's no way that we're going to project a, a 100% on refi. In fact, let's just underwrite this as a straight 18% average annualized. It wasn't even IR, because right? we know IRRs are a bit lower than the annualized. 18% annualized return over a five-year hold, no refi. That's all we said. And that's basically all we're going to be able to produce at this point, after all this trouble we've had. So you know, thank goodness we didn't go with the you know, the original underwriting and, and try to project that to our investors.
0: That's nice. Well, well done. You know, people, there's so many people out there that's like, oh, real estate, we'll get a deal. It's easy. It runs itself. And, you know, this, yeah. is, this is where the rubber meets the grind. That asset management piece is so important. And yeah, you can struggle. And at the end of the day, still meet your projections or beat your projections, but you kind of put in the work and well done. Yeah.
1: And you have to, you know, find the right asset with the right partners and the right property managers. Like all, of, well, so many things have to go right to begin with. Yeah. So again, that, that underwriting is the very first step in all of that. And if you get that wrong, right, if you're not buying it right in the first place, then you're already starting way behind. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What was the best advice you've ever received about real estate?
1: Somebody that I had as a mentor told me to only do fat deals, right? <laughs> meaning deals that are, you know, that look very, very profitable on paper, which was really hard because when I first started, it was like, you know, I was being, too conservative on the underwriting and I wasn't winning anything. Right? I wasn't getting any deals awarded to me because my price was far lower. And part of it was just I was scared, scared to make a mistake because this, you know, this mentor was just all over me about, you know, making sure I was super careful about every little assumption I made. So you know we loosened it up a, a little bit, got some deals and got things rolling in 2017, 2018 with our sponsored deals. And even now, I look at all, you know, the ones that I turned down, even, you know, 2018, 2019, we would have made a killing on those deals if I just went to where the brokers wanted us to buy it at. But I'm, I'm happy we
0: kept things conservative and still did great. I'm in the, the same boat, totally. Yeah, we were very conservative in the beginning. And once that confidence of execution and being in, the, in a certain marketplace, then yeah, you could, feel you know, you go a little, we push a little further, but yeah, yeah, yeah same exact thing.
1: Right. The difference um, there is, uh, like you said, confidence of execution. What underlies that is you've had the experience. Right. You know how many unit turns you can do realistically. You know what your leasing volume should be in a market, or how to research that, how to you know how to market units that were recently renovated. All those things that go into it come with that experience. The danger is again, and this whole idea of like only doing bad deals. The danger is not knowing what that really is. And just assuming, you know, and and going out and doing, you know, a deal just because you think it's going to work out, but you don't really know.
0: So as a coach, what are the two of the most important things you tell new investors?
1: Well, number one is is only do fat deals. So I've said that to hundreds of people. And when I'm coaching people on, on, you know, how to invest in multifamily, that's still number one priority. So what does that mean? You know, it's, to me, it starts with the underwriting. And even if you're a limited partner, you should have some basic level of underwriting knowledge enough so you can ask you know, informed questions. So there's, I believe there's an and a science to it. The science part is, you know, how good are you at Excel spreadsheets? And it's not just plugging in numbers, but can you trace back the formulas? Do you know exactly how you know, cap rates are, are going to... You know, if you make a cap rate assumption about when you're going to sell, how does that feed all the way through the spreadsheet to the P&L and to your profits? And what if that number or that formula was somehow messed up? Would you be able to figure out why it was messed up? Would you even recognize it? Or do you now have a flawed spreadsheet that's telling you it's a great deal when it's really not? Right, so that's the science part of it. Training, you, know, you can kind of figure that stuff out and experience. The art of it is really the assumptions you're making, again, around you know, how quickly can you lease up the property? How quickly can you raise rent? What are you using for comps? Right? Are you using a property that's truly a comp? It's, you know, it's less than a mile away, similar build, similar amenities, and all that sort of thing. Or you're just using whatever the broker told you, which could be properties that are far nicer than yours, and they're five miles away, not even in the same neighborhood. So yeah, there's a lot that goes to that, but you need to have both of those. And, and the reason why that's so important and why I, I you know, give that advice or that coaching, if you're not super capable with your underwriting and super confident in that underwriting because of your capability and your experience, then how can you look your investors in the eye and say, this is a good deal, right? So you, number one is you have to be looking out for your investors' interest. And if you don't know for a fact down to like the formula levels in that spreadsheet, you shouldn't be doing that deal. And you should not be bringing anyone into that deal with you. The second part of that is once you're into the deal, six months in, a year in, or three years in, how do you know if it's on track? If you never knew with deep knowledge and and detail how it was supposed to perform in the same place or in the first place. So, yeah, those are the, the two points on that underwriting piece that are, again, very critical.
0: That is fantastic advice because I see so many people, a lot of capital raisers, just they'll just jump on a deal just to raise money and really haven't done that deep dive. And that's it's so critical. I'm walking yeah. those comps, you know, CoStar or Yardi or all these other reports. Will they'll skip so many properties that are are much better comps that are so much closer, and it. And if you haven't walked them and known exactly, is do they have nicer amenities? Is it? You know, Mm -hmm. what what do the interiors look like? Are they, it's including rubs and all that, all these small details that are huge to make sure that you can get the rent and execute on your business plan as you project it is really important, so great advice. One last question, what is your favorite tool you use for real estate? Whether it's a software or whatever it is, what is something that you deeply rely on? Mm
1: -hmm. I don't have any particular like technology tools. I mean, sp- spreadsheets are my thing, but I'm just actually a little joke. My son got a coffee mug. He went to school for real estate finance and the, the mug has a little picture of it, the Excel spreadsheet logo and it says Freak in the Sheet, which I thought was funny, but I'm a, again, spreadsheet geek. Um, I think the best tool that I use for me it's partners, right? Having the right partners, not that my partners are tools or that I use them in any way, but having really solid partners, boots on the ground, Second set of eyes on everything that I do is very critical for
0: my business. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, Steve, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge. You talked about forcing appreciation on a deal and not just, you know, buying a deal for whatever, you know, and, and not having that ability to, to create value. Talked about real conservative underwriting and having great partners. Please tell the listeners where they can learn more about you and your company. The company is Velocity Capital.
1: And the website is velocitycap.com. And you can pretty much connect with me there and read about us.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, this is Gary Lipsky signing off. I'll be back next week with another informative episode on the Real Estate Investor Podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and like, subscribe, and leave a review as it will help us reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Break of Day Capital, Head over to our website at breakofdaycapital.com and sign up for our newsletter and fill out our investor application. We'll talk to you next week.